Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us over the past couple months, um, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You know, there's, there's this large crowd that gathers around Christ on a mountainside. And Jesus, much like Moses in the Old Testament, after he rescued the people out of Egypt, he brought them to a mountain. And what did Moses do? He brought them the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus now here is reaffirming He doesn't decline the law. He reaffirms this law on the mountainside with his people. And he's teaching them. He begins to teach them. And the main question that he poses to answer is, what would it look like if you actually took the gospel? Very simple. What would it look like if you took the gospel and you lived it out? What are the values of the kingdom? What is the character of the kingdom? And we walk through chapter 5, the original, the first part of chapter 5, the Beatitudes, is probably the most famous part of the Sermon on the Mount. But as you progress in, now we're approaching that section between the remaining portions of chapter 5 into 6 and parts of 7, where he talks about ethics, our lifestyle, the ethical way of living. And here, specifically, is the portion where Jesus deals with our treasures, basically our relationships with money. There's three things we're going to learn today about money and our relationship with money. The first is the power of money in our lives. The second is why it's a power in our lives. And lastly, um, how do you break? How do you break that power? Power of money, why is it the power? How do you break the power? Right? Um, First, the power. The power of money And we're going to start with verses 22 to 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. You know, if your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Now, the word good here, if your eyes are good, Jesus is not talking about good looking. He's not talking about the strength of your eye, 20-20 vision, but rather the clarity of your eye. That word in Greek um, represents clarity. If your eyes are clear, then your whole body is full of light. If your eyes are bad or unclear or lacks clarity, then your whole body is full of darkness. You know, how great is that darkness? Why does he refer to the eye as the lamp of the body? What does that really mean? And what does this allusion have anything to do with the Christian mentality of money? It's sandwiched, you know, in between his two discourses about money in this passage. The Greek word clear It can be translated, um, it's a double entendre. It means two things. First, it can mean singleness. When we look at the word clarity, we talk about singleness here. Simplicity. When When you hear the phrase or the word used in the context of relationship, he's talking about wisdom. 
But here, it also is a double entendre. The word could be used to mean generous. If your eyes are generous, then your whole body is full of light. If your eyes are not generous, then your whole body is full of darkness. What does he mean by that? Think about it this way. You're able to see because there's light in the room. Uh, If your eye is functioning well, functioning properly, if there's clarity in the eye, then what happens is it's taking this light in and it allows the rest of your body then to negotiate around the room. It doesn't matter how strong the light is. If there's light and if your eye is processing it and there's clarity through the eyes, you can negotiate around the room. But if your eyes are not clear, if your eyes are not functioning properly and they're unclear, it doesn't matter how much light is in the room, you can't negotiate You're going to stumble. You're going to damage yourself. You're going to hurt people, maybe other people. You're going to hurt yourself. That's what what that basically means because everybody sees the same thing. Everybody sees the same thing. Many people are able to see, but not everyone is able to see clearly. You know, you may have poor vision. You may have, uh, you know, obstructions in your eye. There may be something in your eye that's clouding your eye or blocking your eye. Ezekiel chapter 14 uh, and Joel chapter 2, there are passages in Scripture that refer to stumbling blocks in front of our face that cause us to not be able to see clearly. And as a result, what is a stumbling block? You're constantly bumping into things. You're constantly stumbling over things because your eye isn't clear. That's what he's talking about here. If your eye isn't clear... Even if there's sufficient light around you, your entire body is filled with darkness. That's what Jesus is saying here. So what? So what? Verses 19 to 21, Jesus talks about money. Verse 24, you know, Jesus is talking about money. Verse 22 to 23, what we just talked about, we just read, is sandwiched. You know, this discourse about the eyes is sandwiched between those two passages about money. What is Jesus trying to say? What is he trying to teach us here? In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, watch out. I want you to watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not uh, consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he says. What is greed? Greed is a desire, a dependence on money, a dependence on material possessions. That's what it is. It means that you have a relationship with money in a way that you desire it. You know, you depend on it. You live for it. Your desire is an over-desire for money. In other words, money is an idol of the heart that creates the desire for more money. You know, it's, it's a cycle. It creates a desire for more money. And Jesus says, you've got to watch out for this. You've got to watch out for all kinds of greed, which means, you know, you know that there's, there's multiple kinds of greed. There's more than one kind. And so you have to watch out for this because at any point in time, you could be greedy. Why does he say that? Why does he say watch out? Why does he center this teaching, verses 22 to 23, around the eye? You know, we're going to put this together and here it is. Greed is the inordinate desire for money that has a particular blinding effect on the soul's eyes, on the eyes of your soul. That's what money does. It has a particular blinding effect on the eyes of your soul. Um, uh, based on your heart's desires, what your eyes see you know, can be subjective. How you interpret the world around you is subjective based on what your heart sees, what your heart desires. And so reality, you know, the reality of what you see is easily distorted 
And Jesus is saying money, possessions, it has this peculiar way of blinding you, distorting what your eyes see, and helping you interpret things differently. And that's going to affect the rest of the way that your body, the way that you move, the way that you operate. We've all been blinded in our lives. We're all blinded by things that we desire. In other words, the way that you see things, everything, the way that you see everything in life is often, Jesus says here, contextually, he says, is often controlled by greed. The way that you see things is going to affect the way that you negotiate around the room. I've heard that there's this poll taken on all these different types of sins confessed in the Catholic Church to the priests. If you look at this poll, apparently, um, you'll see sins of hatred, sins of adultery, and theft. But rarely, rarely, and it makes sense to me, rarely do you see anybody actually go and confess their greed. Greed is often overlooked. You know, it's one of those sins that's very difficult to measure, and there are very real reasons where, you know, how do you measure greed? How do you see greed? What are the limits or the boundaries that exist while you accumulate money before you finally say, now I've crossed the line, now I'm greedy? How do you measure that? How do you see that through? Greed is one of those intangible, complex natures of a sinner. So many nuances that blinds you and distorts you in a way before, you know, and it's slow. It's like the proverbial frog, frog in, the, in the kettle. You know, you, you know, you got a pot of boiling water, you throw a frog in, he jumps right out. He knows, he's, he's cooked, right? He jumps right out. But if you put a frog in like lukewarm water, he's wading in this water and you start to turn it up degree by degree, what happens? The frog has no idea he's being cooked. That's greed. So many nuances, so many different degrees, little by little, inch by inch, degree by degree. Next thing you know, you're blinded. Your eyes are distorted. How you view people, how you view yourself, everything has changed. Nobody ever conceives of the fact that they may be greedy. It's one of those sins that, that you know, people believe it's always not true of them. Why is that? You know? You know, it makes it a very, very difficult category, a very, very difficult category of sin compared to other sins. The darkness, you know, the darkness of your eyes, you know, it takes place over the course of time through all these nuances and shades. The next thing you know, you can't see. You're distorted. Everything, the way you, cha- the way you see the world, the way you respond to the world has changed until you're left in darkness, until you are distorted, until you've been changed, until you're left in the ultimate darkness, the ultimate aloneness the ultimate distortion, the ultimate twisting in life and death. Nobody wakes up in the morning, you know, after having an affair, nobody wakes up, looks at the person that they've slept with and says, oh my gosh, you're not my wife, you're not my husband. Nobody knows that because when you commit adultery, you know you're committing adultery. When you steal something, you know you're stealing something. When you are lying, by and large, you know you're lying. But you don't know. It's very, very difficult to measure greed. And part of the reason is because when you look around you, there are always people, there's always somebody, a friend, a relative, somebody very close to you, somebody, maybe your boss, a coworker, there's always somebody who's richer than you. They're the greedy ones in your eyes. The nuances of greed actually prevent us from seeing ourselves as greedy. That's what makes it such a dangerous sin. You know, and as a result, we rarely acknowledge greed as a factor in our distorted way of living and our lifestyles. Jesus says, you've got to watch out. He doesn't say, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of adultery. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of 
thief, thievery. He says, he warns us of greed. Greed's the thing that blinds you, he says. Greed's the thing that distorts you. He talks about your eyes with respect to greed, he says. You know, it has a particular blinding effect in a way that other sins do not. You know, over the years, a lot of people have come to me. They've talked to me about a lot of things. I mean, I'm not a Catholic priest, but people come and they, they want to talk to their pastor. They want to talk about sins, stuff that they're struggling with. And I don't want to make it trite. You know, they talk about their lust or their pride or their anger, even their adultery, even that. But few to none, at least according to my recollection, have ever come to me and said, I'm greedy. I think I'm greedy. I think I have a problem with greed. Scripture says you've got to examine yourself. Jesus is saying right here, you've got to watch out. He says your eyes may be cloudy. Sandwich, right in between those passages about, about money, right? That's what he's saying. You know, greed is one of those sins. It's not like one of those aha type of sins, you know? It's this thing that creeps up, creeps up on you, slowly shapes the way you view other people, slowly shapes the way you view poor people, slowly shapes the way you judge people based on how wealthy they are. You know, because, oh, that person must be smart. That person must not be. That person I want to get to know. That person I don't. You see, we build neighborhoods around greed, on the concept of greed. The dividing lines in Philadelphia are very, very clear. If you go down, right down, some of you this afternoon are going to go to lunch on City Ave. You go right, you drive down City Ave. On one side, you have one of the richest parts of Philadelphia. And just across the street on the other side, you have one of the poorest parts, if not the poorest part of Philadelphia. Neighborhoods are built around greed. Around greed. Communities are shaped around greed. And it happens very, very slowly. It's all part of the distortion. Greed is very easy to justify because you always see richer people than you. That's part of the distortion. You know, and that's, that's part of the problem. We don't know where it starts. We don't know how it starts. You know, we don't know where it began. Practical case, you know, let's take a look at our choice in jobs, our choice in occupations. We have a system, America, a lot of other countries, the free world at least, has a system of recruiting in this country that caters to our greed. You know, on one hand, um, it's very, very natural, it's very standard to pursue opportunities that are going to give you an optimum salary and an optimum benefits. You know, these incentives. Very, very logical to do that. But when you're, selecting a jo- when you're selecting a job, you're really looking at three things. You know, you're really looking for uh, a salary, you're looking for growth potential, you know, a career path, and you're looking for something that's close to the city. That's what people do when they look for a job, those three things. Why? Because most of us, you know, our jobs and our salaries, those are the things at our stage and age that we're willing to work hard because those things get a status. It gets us started. Everybody here is willing to do that. There's not a single person that is not willing to work hard, you know, gamefully employed to get ahead in life. That's what we call it, right? So we dismiss as a result the demands that our jobs sometimes have on our integrity. Our jobs sometimes tempt us, push us to lie. We dismiss those demands. We dismiss demands to overlook quality. We dismiss demands, you know, oftentimes to overlook rest and our need for rest. We're constantly working. America is one of the top two or three most overworked countries in the world. In the world. We overwork ourselves. Every free moment. There's no such thing as a free moment. We feel guilty when we go on vacations. You know, other countries have labor laws. It's built into the system, so you're forced to rest, not us. 
know, we pride ourselves in our ability to work and work and work. Why? Because it's greed. It's this pursuit of more. Affluenza, they call it, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. That's what they termed it. You know, so um, we do business deals. You know, we, we, our, our integrity, our character, um, oftentimes is distorted. And as a result, here's some questions. Do you do business deals that affect your neighborhood or in other neighborhoods that hinder the good of others in the community? Do you pursue, without a thought, jobs that ultimately are going to push other people out of work? Or it's going to damage your integrity. You know, it's going to promote dishonesty in your life. Um, another way to look at it is like this. If your security is threatened, if your title is threatened, if your money is threatened in your life, you know, do you, do you feel, is that, is that a nightmare in your world? Do you have a hard time sleeping at night because you're worrying about position or title, promotion, salary? These kind of things. Here's a story I took um, you know, from Tim Keller. Great story. I, I was looking all over for it. I wanted to read more about it. I couldn't find it. In 1635, Robert Kane is a member of the first congregational church in Boston. And in 1635, the elders suspended him from the Lord's Supper. They admonished him. Uh, so basically what they did was they disciplined him publicly for the sin of greed. It's an astounding thing. I was, I was perplexed by this. Why? Because at that time, the local church consented with their members to a 4% profit rule. You know, in 1635, all businessmen were permitted in their community to keep only 4% of their total profit. 4% of profits made from business. Now, times were very different, different back then. You know, the style of business has changed. Types of business have changed. Business itself has changed. But Robert Kane withheld 6%. It was documented as fact that he was withholding 6% for himself. And so he was disciplined publicly for holding more than what was agreed upon within the church. Now, how did they come up with this concept of 4%? Because that barely keeps up with inflation today in our world, right? How did they, how did they come up with this 4%? Back then, in 1635, simpler days, people calculated together as a community that it was possible to live well off of 4% profit in your salary. 4%. So anything beyond that. And they wanted to protect, as a church and as a church community, they wanted to protect, figure out some systematic way of protecting themselves from becoming greedy. And so what they did was they came across this number. They calculated this number. We're not saying that, you know, we as a body should establish that method as a way of life. Certainly that's not what we're saying. But the question does bring out the nature of the problem. Who do you keep accountable to with respect to your money? A lot of us never even considered that we need to keep ourselves accountable with respect to money. You know, but Jesus says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. If your eye is full of light, your whole body, you know, if if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He's saying money has a power to distort your view of your status, your security, what you really enjoy in life, what really matters to you. You know, money has a power to keep us from asking all the right questions. And so the power of greed is evident. It blinds you. It distorts you. It changes your sight. That's the first point. Second point, much quicker. 
Why does it have that power? Very, very simple. Why does it have that power? Verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus saying here? Very, very simple. Basically what he's saying is this. You will do anything for what you treasure. We would all agree. You will do anything for what you treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. There your heart will be. That means there your identity will be placed, there your ambition is, there your sense of worth rests. In the things that you treasure most, there your sense of worth rests. That's where your ego is built. That's what it means. In other words, you will be willing to die for anything that you treasure. You will be willing to sacrifice for anything that you treasure. You will be willing to give anything, including your own life. You will work yourself to the ground. It's part of the curse in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? From dust you've come, dust you will return. You will, by the sweat of your brow, you will labor. You will work to the point of death for anything that you treasure. What that means is the place where your heart rests is easily revealed by your money. Money has a revealing effect in our lives. It, ref- you know, it, it, it reveals the things that we treasure most, often. The desires in that heart of hearts, you know, the core of your being, the, core of it, the deepest rooted longings in your life can often be revealed by money. For some of us, you know, money is a means to just physical luxuries, physical luxuries, physical pleasure. For others, money is an avenue to cure anxiety. For others, money is, a, is, is the key to security in life. For others, money is a key to status. It's a key to getting influence. You know, you don't care about the, the, the luxuries. You just want influence. You want to influence people. I need money. It's a key to respect culturally in life. Whatever it is, whatever you do, it often is revealed. Your true, the true longings of your heart are revealed often by money. And that means that the reason why we don't give money away is because if you give money away, it means you're giving away influence, if you value influence. If you give money away, you're giving away status, if you value status. If you give money away, you're giving away buying power, if you like physical luxury, if you like material possessions. If you're giving money away, you're giving away your security. You know, that, that's the reason why um, we have such a tough time giving money away. We're giving away our popularity. I need to dress like that person. We want to we give away, we don't want to give away our position. I need to live like my peers. I need to live high like my peers. I need to live in those neighborhoods, send my kids to those schools. Giving threatens our security. My identity is on the line. My livelihood is on the line. My safety is on the line. I need to save. I need to save. Can't you see? I need, I need. That's the greedy person over there. I need to, I need to, I need to collect things. I need to save things. I need to hold things. The reason why is because if I don't, you know, how will I live tomorrow? Where's my future? Where's my, where's my security? Where's my identity going to come from? All these kind of things. It threatens our future. You know, it threatens our security. My identity is on the line. It threatens our future. How am I going to get married at this point if I don't start saving? I, can't, I don't have any room to give. It's going to threaten our pride or our ego. I need money because people will look down on me if I don't have enough, if I don't keep up. That's a very common thing, very common Money has a tendency to distort our view of other people. We tend to categorize people based on their wealth. We tend to like them more automatically based on their wealth. You know how, ridic- you know how insane that is? To, li- to call somebody more trustworthy 
or to like them more, to go to them for advice more, simply because they're on a different social economic rung than you are or than somebody else is? That's insane. That's crazy. Our, we tend to weigh a person's significance. We tend to undermine a person's significance based on how much money they have, based on their ability to make money. Money gives off the illusion that if you have it, you have control in your life in a world that's absolutely, utterly uncontrollable. It gives you the illusion that you are sovereign, that you have a kingdom, that you are king. Giving away, you're giving away your kingdom. You can't do that. I don't want to give away not even a small parcel of my kingdom. Money is an idol. What do we learn about idols? If you've been at this church for any significant period of time, you know we talk a lot about idols. What do we learn about idols here? Here, idols will transform you, will shape your view of things, will shape your eyes and shape your responses to other people and to yourself. It gives you a false sense of worth. That's what money does. If you hook yourself into money, what you're saying is, I need money to increase my potential to increase my freedom, to increase my option, to increase my joys. You know, so when you're hooking into it, it threatens your security. You know, money threatens your security, your future, your pride, your ego. It distorts your view of self and, and others and, and your significance. So by hooking into money, you're actually decreasing your potential, decreasing your options, decreasing your freedom, decreasing your joy, when all along you thought, because of your distortion, you're increasing all these things. I find a lot of people these days, much later on in life, coming to me and saying, at the age of 50, at the age of 60, at the age of 70, my life, even my church life, was a lie. I worshiped money. And now I realize after my kids have gotten old and moved on and I'm alone, you know, with my spouse, I realize what really matters. My health is failing. My children have moved on. Good relationships. Children have moved on. And I realize, what did I do with my youth? What did I do with my youth? That's what they're saying. I often say, they say, I I gave myself to money and look at me. If your treasure is in money, then it's only going to last as long as the money lasts. On top of that, not only are you going to waste away the best, most rich years of your life, It's only going to last as long as it lasts. So when you lose your job, when you lose your investments, the world around you crumbles. Everything starts to fall apart. You start to lose your world. You've lost your world. You've lost your soul. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Yet forfeits his soul. You lose yourself. That's why it's so powerful. It reveals the deepest longings of your heart. And when you hook into it, the hooking into it is hooking into the deepest longings of your It has such a stronghold in our lives. That's why it's a power. Now, how do you break the power of money in our lives? Verses 19 to 20, Jesus offers a prescription. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where, <clears throat> where moth and rust destroy with thieves breaking and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. That's what he says. What is treasure? What is this thing about treasures, storing up treasures? What is a treasure? In the Lord of the Rings, 
is a story, this trilogy, about a very special ring. If you haven't seen the movie, hopefully you've read the book. If you haven't read the book, hopefully you saw the movies. Um, it's about the special ring. When you get this ring, what happens? You fall under the spell of this ring. It's a very powerful ring. You become very jealous for this ring. You become very greedy for this ring. It changes your shape. It changes your view. It starts to distort your features when you start to wear this ring. It shapes the entire view of everything that's important around you. You're willing to leave everything behind to claim and to keep and to maintain this ring. All the while, it's shaping you and transforming you and changing you. You fall under, you fall under its control. You start to call this ring your precious. The ring starts to determine your value. The ring determines your end. The ring determines your life. Your treasure is that, the thing that is most precious to you in life. All the while that you're trying to gain it, attain it, control it, hold it, the joke's on you because it has a hold on you. You say to yourself, if I have this one thing in my life, that's my precious, then my life will be worth it. Then my life will be worth it. Your treasure is anything that defines your significance, your security, your ambitions in life, and it's going to then carry out in your lifestyle because your treasure, you're willing to work the jobs that you hate, it's going to shape the way you view other people, that is your treasure. You're going to do all those things for the things that you really treasure. And everybody's got something that we treasure. In fact, we've been built to treasure things in our lives. We were built for worship. The Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. We were built to treasure and relate to the Father. And when sin came into the world and that relationship broke, the longing remained. And now we're hooking into these other things. Here's how ridiculous and absurd sometimes it looks. When you treasure intimacy, look at King David, one of the most written about characters in the Old Testament. King David. He was king, and yet that was not enough. Having sex with Bathsheba was worth sacrificing his kingdom, his reputation, his leadership, his power. His power for the sake of intimacy. Maybe it's something material in your life. You know what that means? Then money means buying power. It means power in your life. Having that at all costs is important to you. Or maybe it's not something material, it's something immaterial in your life. Significance, influence, or maybe it's something relational in your life, a healthy home, well-meaning kids, you know, good kids, good children, a wonderful family, or maybe it's something very, very deeply rooted, your sense of worth, honor, deep-rooted security, control. Everyone has something in their lives that is most precious to them, something so powerful in their lives that they're willing to die for it. But the problem is this, verse 19. He says, all those other things, moths and rust will destroy it. You know what a moth is? It's this annoying little insect that flies around. Oftentimes, you don't even see it. It's subversive. It hides and does its activity in the dark. And it's so small and so harmless that it enters in and it destroys everything that you own in your closet. It's got that kind of power. Moths and rust will eat away at this, he says. Thieves will come, will break in and steal it. It could be covert, it could be overt. Earthly treasures will get lost. Something big like a pickaxe will happen to you or something over the course of time 
this course of time, course of days will eat away. Jesus says, you need, you know, don't store it there. Rather, store up your treasures in heaven, the things that you long for the most. Store it up in heaven. A citizen of kingdom, he says, stores up his treasures in heaven. What he's saying is this, the most precious thing that you can have is the one thing that if you have it, you will never lose it. You stored it away in heaven. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be taken away from you. It's Jesus. What is it? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the heavenly precious. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is about to be baptized. He's on earth. And as he's being baptized, the heavens open up. The Spirit of God comes down on him like a dove, and God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What he's saying is this. He says, look at my son. Look at my beautiful son. Look at how proud I am of my son. I'm doting on my son. Listen to my son. Look at my son. This is my precious. He's doting on Jesus. The Bible says that any treasure that you've got, if it's not Jesus, will cause you to die for it. But Jesus is the only treasure that's willing to die for you. Every other treasure in your life, you will work to the bone and you will die for it. But Jesus is the only treasure in your life that will actually work and die for you. And if you see to the extent that he treasures you, you got to look at the cross. If you see to the extent that he treasures you, the, the extent that he's willing to die for you, to go and die for you, the journey to the cross to die for you, you will treasure him. And only if you treasure him can you be free of the power of greed and money in your life. Who is Jesus? Jesus had the title. He had the titles. He was Prince he was the son of God, that's status. He has the inheritance. He is the governor and the sustainer of all things. That means he's all power. That means he's all authority. That's power. That's wealth. That's significance. He is precious. And yet, he gave it up for what he treasured. He's, you know, if you're willing to let some things go for something else, it means you treasure that thing that you've let it all go for. That thing is more important, Right? What do you get for the man who has it all? What do you get for the person who has it all? The exact representation of God, the radiance of God's glory, the Shekinah glory of God. That's Hebrews chapter 1. What do you get for the man who has it all? When Jesus came to earth, he was stripped of his robes. He was stripped of his heavenly robes. He was clothed in humanity. He came, he was born naked, in a manger. That's how he was born. And as he progressed on into the world, he says, foxes have holes, you know, to sleep in. But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That's what he says. That's what he says. And that's how he died. He was stripped naked. He came into the world naked. He left the world naked. You know, the tomb that he was buried in wasn't even his tomb. It wasn't reserved for him. It was borrowed. It was a borrowed tomb. He owned nothing in the world. He gave everything up. Philippians chapter 2 said he, he had emptied himself of everything, including his own identity. We would never, we would not have recognized him. That's what it said. He lost all of his friends, all of his reputation. The powerful people of the world rejected him. In fact, they put him, they cursed him, they placed him on trial, and it gave him a death sentence. He gave up his power. He had no power. That was Jesus. Jesus had all the authority, and yet he gave it up. He had all the power, the, you know, he held the universe in his hand, and yet he gave it up. But on the cross, you know, if you look at the, even the clothes that he wore was taken away from him, on the cross, he experienced the ultimate stripping, the ultimate loss. 
On the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have lost my precious. I have been stripped of my precious. My sense of worth, what I've hooked my identity in, what I've hooked my significance in, my source of hope, my wealth, my peace, my security, I've been stripped. It has forsaken me. I've lost it. I am bankrupt. On the cross, Jesus surrendered, being God's treasure. You know, God, doting on Jesus, had forsaken him on the cross. He had ceased being the treasure of God. Why? So that we could be the treasure. Jesus lost his treasure. He surrendered his treasure. His ultimate treasure was the Father. For you. Why? So that you can have the Father. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the faithfulness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ to the Father, the faithfulness of Christ for you. Look at his love for you to the end. When you see Jesus giving up his status so that you can have status, giving up his power so that you can have power, giving up his significance so that you will be known, that's the Father, right? To the degree that you can trust Jesus giving up his ultimate treasure for you, he becomes your treasure. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You know what that means? You are chosen. You know what that means? You are valued. You are a royal priesthood. Royal priesthood. That means you have wealth. That means you are part of a family, a monarchy. That's what you're a part of. You are a priesthood, a kingly priest. That means you are holy. That means, you know, you are holy. Jesus became sin so that you could be holy. Jesus gave up his kingdom so that you could have the kingdom. Jesus became forsaken so that you could be chosen. He says, you are a nation. You are privileged. You are protected. Do you know that in the days of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, you can wear a badge saying that you are a citizen of Rome and you can walk from one end of the known world to the other end of the known world. And if anybody were to so much put a finger on you, the might of the Roman Empire would fall on them. That's what it means to be a citizen of an empire, of a kingdom. You are privileged. You are a citizen, he's saying. But the beautiful one here is, you are a people that belongs to God. You are his treasure. You are his precious. For some of us, what that means, we're very humble. You know, you're either, when it comes to money, we're going to be humble or we're going to be proud. We're going to be humble or confident. It's very difficult to be both without the gospel. You're going to be humble, meaning that you're going to be ashamed because you either have money or you're going to be ashamed because you don't have money. You know what that means? That means money rules you. Some of us are going to be confident because we have money. That means money rules you. Some of you are, uh, or some of us are confident, you know, meaning that we despise people who have money. That means money rules you. Some of us feel superior to other people because we're rich. That means money rules you. Do you get it? Many nuances. Only the gospel can bring clarity. Only the gospel can bring humility. Only the gospel, you know why? Because everything that you've got, you know it's not going to last. It's all going to go away. 
that this ball of rock will one day stop hurtling through space, and one day it's all going to come to an end, and everything as we know it is going to break up and fall apart. The thing is, what are you going to cling to to hold you? Your bank account? Your investments? Some of us, if you've hooked into Christ, you will be humble because you didn't earn that. You didn't work for your salvation. Jesus did. And it came at a huge cost, his life. That's going to make you humble. And yet, you will be rich beyond measure. You will be full beyond measure. The grace of God will be so sufficient for you. If you hook into that, it's going to change the way you view life. It's going to change the way you view yourself. It's going to change the way you view other people. And you will loosen your grip. Because you never had a grip to begin with. That's part of the distortion. You will be able to loosen your grip. Remember that double entendre in Greek? Clarity, it means generous. You will give. We are here planted in the city of Philadelphia. We could have planted. It would have been cheaper to plant elsewhere. It would have been cheaper to plant near my home, where I live. It would have been cheaper to plant actually in the suburbs. But we would not have built a church with people as able-bodied as you with a heart that you have for the city because you're invested in the city. We, in order for the gospel to thrive, the city needs to thrive. In order for the gospel to advance in this city, this city needs to advance, which means that we need to give. We need to give of all that we are. Jesus emptied himself. You will never do that unless you see Jesus emptying himself for you. He was clear. His eyes were clear. What did he see on the cross that made him glad? He saw you. Will you, with that clarity, look out and see all that there is to be one? Will you do that? Let's pray.